Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, folks, welcome. Welcome to this live broadcast here on Wednesday. This is TNT Today's News Talk. I'm your host, Patrick Kennigson. We have two hours of live news and analysis. We're going to bring you here live and direct. Uh, we're going to be hopefully connecting some of our best people uh, to give you some insights from around the world, uh, including in the first hour, uh, the return of our European correspondent, Freddie Ponton, who's been off on leave. Um, he's back and uh, he's got a lot to share with us. Freddie has still been doing research behind the scenes for quite some time. So we look forward to hearing what he has to say on the Middle East. Uh, and I think as well, he's going to be um, unveiling a lot of key points that people need to now pay attention to and also things that people can action as well. We'll talk about that and more in the first hour. Also in the second hour, we're going to be joined by veteran Middle East correspondent and author of Hezbollah, Born with a Vengeance, one of the first definitive uh, uh, books on on the subject of Hezbollah, Hala Jabber, uh, Lebanese journalist, is going to join us in the second hour. So I look forward to that as well. Now, before we get to uh, the sort of meat on the bones of what's happening uh, between Palestine and Israel, we're going to survey uh, the global we're going to survey the global news agenda just briefly, if you will. And according to according to Russia, um, this is an announcement by Sergei Lavrov uh, recently. The United States has failed to turn Russia into a global pariah, a global pariah state. Meanwhile, after sanctions and the crippling of the Russian economy, well, it didn't quite work out as planned for the West. Still, Moscow continues to engage with the global community, including the global South, despite attempts to isolate it by the United States and its partners through sanctions and other coercive means. So this is interesting. And obviously, this is not a surprise. This is not anything that hasn't been said before, uh, but this is also coming uh, under the sort of shadow, if you will, of uh, September's G7 summit in New Delhi. And so what you see is certain powers in the world emerging in the phenomenon of what we call multipolarism. So whereby the United States was the single sole hyperpower in the world uh, post the Cold War, after the collapse of the Iron Curtain, the dissipation of the Soviet Union, United States step forward is the sole hyperpower uh, in the world. And it really reigned in that respect for a very long time. You could say probably for, you know, the better part of 30 years, even uh, up until recently. Um, but when did things really take a turn? Well, they, they sort of took a turn for the worst with the Iraq war in 2003. And things just slowly got progressively worse from there. Next thing you know, the United States is withdrawing from all its major positions like Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq as well. There's a few U.S. bases in Iraq still, but they're not welcome. It's the official position of the Iraqi government to uh, kick the U.S. out. The U.S. are only there through coercive means of probably paying off somebody in the Iraqi government. 
and also just intimidation. They're saying, well, if you leave, um, you know, we can't protect you against the terrorists. And these are the terrorists that the United States is probably supporting under the table. No surprise there, nothing new there. So, but where things really went pear-shaped for the U.S. was on February 24th, 2022. Well, in truth, it was before that. But, well, if you want to go turn back the clock another 10 years uh, to February 2014, the Maidan coup in Ukraine, and then you have a real kind of clear picture of when this process began to accelerate, that is the sort of fashioning of Ukraine as a proxy for the West, namely the United States, of course, NATO and Britain, uh, but using it as a battering ram against Russia. And they did for eight years. They armed Ukraine. They armed it to NATO specification. They brought in special forces from the U.S., from the U.K., other European countries, other parts of the world to train Ukraine, to make it a modern NATO army to confront Russia. And that was always the goal. And this has also been admitted by people on the Ukrainian side up to the presidential level, and of course, the European side, namely France and Germany. So creating this new machine, if you will, to attack Russia, that's what Ukraine was. It was NATO's proxy. And when Russia finally snapped back to protect the people of the Donbass who had been under siege from the NATO-backed Ukrainian forces for a number of years, in total almost eight years, uh, and then when Russia hit back and basically said, that's it, enough, and put their foot down and said, you're not going to basically overrun these people, these Russian enclaves in eastern Ukraine or Crimea, which is ostensibly Russian, by the way, and was actually part of Russia uh, before 1954. That's a fact. So it's been reunited, you could say, with the Russian Federation after being split apart during the Soviet years, thanks to Nikita Khrushchev making a political move there to curry favor with the government in Kiev at the time. It's a long story, but nonetheless, history matters. And so when Russia snapped back, then this was the beginning of the demise of the United States as a global hyperpower. This was the moment. This was the moment. And so when they declared they're going to sanction Russia, to isolate Russia, this is a UN Security Council member, a world power, and they, de they declared they're going to isolate Russia, they're going to cut it off from the global SWIFT banking system, they're going to uh, prohibit it from uh, participating in any dollar transactions, any, any dollar transactions uh, with Russia would be seized. Uh, through this global sanctions program. So this was the punishment, the collective punishment by the West who were determined and said quite publicly that they wanted to destroy the Russian economy and their motivation there would be to create such pain and suffering in Russia that the people would somehow, in their minds anyway, rise up and overthrow the evil autocrat Vladimir Putin. That was the narrative from the West. And they've tried. They've tried. We're almost two years in. It'll be two years at the end of February. It's coming up soon. We're almost two years in. They've tried, and it looks like they've failed. They failed in the most amazing way. They failed spectacularly. How they failed, not, not only failed to break the Russian economy, but failed, or you could say succeeded in breaking the European economy. And, and to some degree, also damaging 
the U.S. economy. The U.S. has benefited from the sale of fracked LNG to Europe. Um, however, um, the U.S. has been dealt an even more severe blow than an economic one. You could even say more severe than a military blow. And that is a blow to the U.S. soft power complex. They're no longer trusted as an honest broker in the international system. They're no longer seen as a success. They're no longer seen as a leader, a leader morally, ethically, or a leader of nations. They're seen as a coercive rogue element, uh, a bully state, a state that's intent on dominating markets at the expense of the sovereignty of countries all over the world. This is how the U.S. is now viewed as a result of their attempt and failed attempt to isolate and destroy and get regime change in Russia. It didn't happen. They've thrown everything possibly at it financially, militarily, everything except put their own troops on the ground. Of course, that's out of bounds. For the West, they're not willing to sacrifice any of their own people to destroy their enemies. They'd rather use proxies to do it for them. Proxies like Ukraine, ones that are easy to buy off, corrupt states that will take the cash will then conscript their young men, not not just young, some older men, even young women, into the armed forces to throw into the trenches, into the meat grinder, only to find themselves with a 48 to 72 hour life expectancy on the front line. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. It is true. And then the U.S. decided, well, that's not that's not enough. Let's sabotage the energy infrastructure of Europe to make sure that Germany can never do business with Russia again, we will blow up Nord Stream's one and two pipelines, gas pipelines. Of course, they did that already in the fall of 2022. And it's had disastrous effects on the European economy, the price of energy, etc. Industry is fleeing Germany and to a large degree have fled major components of the German economy have fled and they're not coming back. They're never coming back. Europe's finished for all intents and purposes as some sort of ascendant power uh, in the world. The EU is finished. Okay. It's now hanging on for dear life, trying to be relevant, projecting Israeli flags on their parliament building, giant unfurled banners of Zelensky as you walk into the European parliament in Brussels, as I saw myself when I was walking in that building only a few months ago, see a giant 30 foot poster of Zelensky. And there's some kind of icon of democracy. And I thought, am I in Europe or am I in Ukraine? It's hard to tell sometimes. But anyway, that is the fall of the hyperpower, of the sole world superpower of the hegemon. In its place, new poles of power are emerging between Russia and China, between the global south and China and Russia, between the BRICS countries and other allied and interested parties around the world, and also between the resistance faction, the axis of resistance in the Middle East. This is Iraq, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, Yemen, and others. A few more to add to the list, but that is the reality of the situation today. It's a different alignment, and everybody sees it except for a few people. There's only a few people that don't realize this is really happening who are still living in their deluded bubbles. Those are people that live within what's called the Beltway in Washington and also those who live in London. 
The British maybe are a little more realistic than the Americans because they have to be because they're closer to the theater. Uh, but however, uh, not much better in terms of their just overall ignorance and the sort of aversion and somehow, I don't know, visceral racial hate for the Russians and for anything in the East. It's hard to work out where these motivations come from. And it's not strictly racism or anything like that. It's literally hegemonic power proclivities that just tends to happen when you have power centralized and finance centralized and certain attitudes purvey over the years. The empire might be gone, but it still lives in people's heads. Let's take a break here with TNT, today's news talk, and we'll connect Freddie Ponton on the other side for a deep dive into Gaza, the Middle East, and more. I'm Patrick Kennedy, your host. Stay right there. You should hear what George Eliasson is talking about. Donald Trump's wolves. Now, we've talked about the Colorado case, the 14th Amendment case, and the judge has denied uh, the motion to dismiss. Now, if you don't remember, the suit cites the 14th Amendment clause banning those who participate or assist in the insurrection from taking office. And they're making this legal argument based on Trump's actions before and on January 6th. And when they claim that thousands of his supporters were creating an act of sedition at the Capitol. During January 6th, um, Trump actually offered to call the National Guard in. He told the protesters to keep things peaceful. And this is all public knowledge. This isn't a political action. They're trying to control, once again, who can run for the office of president and who cannot. War of the Worlds with George Eliason on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. The conversation continues. Our public education system, which I am now renaming our public miseducation system. On today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you. We're live and direct. Still in the first hour of this live broadcast. Great to have you with us. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat community. I see you guys in there. Had some good numbers in there this week. I think we eclipsed 120 uh, earlier in the week. So good to see the community vibrant in there. That's where you want to be hanging out during live broadcast. Access that through the URL, tntradio.live, of course, through the app. And then click through the Patrick Kenningson show and it'll bring you also onto the website as well browser will launch you'll see the tnt chat bar in there just log in and you'll stay logged in uh for the week or a few weeks until uh, the cookie expires but very good asset for the network is our community thank you guys in there we appreciate you now i want to welcome onto the stage uh, our European correspondent, our de facto European correspondent, who was on leave recently. Uh, we're pleased that he's back with us, but he hasn't been uh, idle while he's away. He's been researching and tweeting and uh, making a huge contribution on X Twitter platform to the conversation around the Middle East, specifically what's going on in Gaza right now. Welcome onto the stage, Freddie Ponton, independent journalist, researcher, also author at 21st Century Wire. Freddie, how are you? 
I'm very good, Patrick. It's good to be back. Uh, not 100%, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best today. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been kind of a journey, not really a, a holiday, as you will call it. But uh, yes, I think it's uh, it's important to stay uh, apprised and to be in the news and understanding exactly what's going on. So uh, I'm glad to be part of the discussions for sure. No, a lot of people are glad that you are in this discussion, Freddie. Uh, your your tweets uh, are very detailed, and uh, they are getting noticed by a lot of major influential accounts on X Twitter. Uh, you're getting a huge reach uh, in what you're doing. You're pointing out some very important points, also providing the background, especially on the international law front. Very important to make these arguments. And by the way, Freddie, there's a number of cases that are already being filed from all sorts of different directions coming after not just the Israeli leadership, Freddie, but also the uh, you know the UK leadership, the US leadership, recent lawsuit against Joe Biden on enabling war crimes. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And what you're going to see is just a constant flow of these sort of filings and cases that are going to come through. And I think it's going to have an effect on the political system. Certainly, Freddie, it's going to create some pressure there. And it looks like there's some leaders that are trying to basically, re they've realized this, Freddie, and they're starting to step back. And they're making these conciliatory comments like, well, maybe we need to pause and have a ceasefire after a month. I'm um, talking, of course, about your, your own Emmanuel Macron there in France, but also Justin Trudeau, better late than never. Trudeau, he stepped forward, made this impassioned speech uh, yesterday about why we need to start treating the Palestinians like humans. Hello, where were these people for the last month, Freddie? Go ahead. Yes, absolutely. I think it's really ridiculous to see them coming after, you know, 30 days of massacre, because there's no other word to, to, to use it here. And uh, Macron and uh, the uh, Trudeau's alike are now trying to capitalize and trying to, you know, virtue signaling uh, that uh, the conflict is unacceptable because the people are moving. And, uh, and this is per perhaps one of the, uh, uh, the major positive point of this conflict. Uh, if I can call that positive, but are the people are awakening to uh, uh, to the influence of Israel around the world, uh, the importance of the Israeli lobby in our institutions, and how they they really really are controlling uh, what what's going on in the Western countries, whether it's in the United States or in the European Parliament, or even in France, you know, in our own assembly, and. Uh, I think the message is pretty clear. It's uh, Macron has no other choice, Trudeau has no other choice to, to come out and to make these declarations. We saw the interview with Macron BBC. It was pretty compelling uh, because he's forced to. It's not because he, he really wants to. I think this is not his political line. Uh, Israel is too important in, in France. Uh, they are very, very entrenched within our media, uh, within uh, uh, different uh, sections of our governments, and the, the lobbying is uh, more powerful than ever. So I think this is an agreement, if you will, uh, perhaps uh, behind the curtains where uh, they have to say that. But uh, we can see the moves within the uh, National Assembly. For example, yesterday, where 90 uh, French deputies are invited uh, for uh, watching the uh, Israeli 7 October movie because uh, they have a movie basically to 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 really uh, uh, give the message and uh, have the people uh, emotionally involved in uh, in what's currently going on in in, uh, in in Palestine and Israel. So it's really for me, as I say, it's the whole thing is a show. 
and I think it's a very important because what I'm happy about is that it's bringing to the major front, to the global scene, to the global stage, a, 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 a huge crime against humanity that should have been already the priority, you know, 50 years ago, even more. Uh, and I think that from now on, it's going to be very difficult for people to turn their eyes away from Palestine. And this need to be addressed. There's no just going back to the way it used to be. And I think the French people and many people in the Western world realize that this has been unaddressed. This has been disregarded. And it needs to be addressed from a, a legal point of view, uh, from an ethical point of view, from a diplomatic point of view, from an economic point of view. Palestine, the problem in this crisis between Israel and the Palestinian needs to be addressed and a real solid solutions, you know, that last long, you know, hopefully forever needs to be found. And that's, I think, what's going on behind the doors at this moment in time. It is incredible. The, like you said, they're, they're screening these propaganda films. And look, I'm, I, that's not a pejorative. Okay, that's I, I Gal Gadot, who's this uh, hot Israeli actress who plays superheroes and things like that. I'm not sure what uh, you know her movies are, but anyway, she's a big star, and so she's she screened the October seventh the movie uh, in, in Hollywood, and uh, you know invited all the celebrities who were pro Israel and so forth. Okay, what it was was a uh, sort of edited jump cut, sort of highlight reel. Um, it included uh, complete disinformation in it, and there was actually clips that were attributed to something that they weren't actually uh, related to. So, I mean, the only way you can describe when you see these sort of compendiums is really propaganda. I mean, it's like the how else you how else can you can you cut it? It's not veritas, it's not verite, it's not documentary. Um, it's heavily edited, and it's done with a certain uh, political intention in mind. So the, the, they're also wheeling these out for governments as well and to try to get government leaders into. And when journalists visit Israel, Freddie, you probably have seen these uh, people who've done these tours recently, uh, pol politicians like von der Leyen, others, plus journalists. They're also showed these films, and their hand walked on these sort of kibbutz tours or they're they're brought and their victims will be brought or first responder spokespeople will come and talk to them about you know oh hamas cut an unborn baby out of the womb of an israeli woman i mean and then the journalists will go and tweet we have just been told by this first responder in a private session that the hamas did x y and z and it's not journalism it's not it's not necessarily uh fact based it's not forensic it's literally propaganda so freddie we're being blitzed with this stuff uh, through our politicians through mainstream western journalists through just innuendo generally all over social media everyone's parroting these lines and i think this has created a lot of problems because it means that there's all this thick noise of propaganda it's very hard to get the conversation moving on this they're really stuck in this hamas is using uh the palestinians as human shields they won't let them leave then there's the dead babies mm -hmm. and all this stuff it really just gums up the works freddie you know it's like keeps them the 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 conversation advancing to a more productive stage but uh your thoughts on the general propaganda well, it's crisis management as well, and I think Israel is extremely well equipped uh, for that. But uh, I would say that, you know, in the bigger pictures, I think it's really about keeping people entertained and uh, uh, more importantly, people kind of uh, focus on 
on I wouldn't say the least important, but a focus on the on to this kind of a back and forth between what the Hamas put out there, what the uh, Israeli IDF intelligence services are putting out there, and meanwhile. The genocide is still taking place. What, I, what I'm looking at here is a race against the clock. There is no doubt about it that Israelis are trying to buy as much time as they can because it's not going very well, first of all. And on the other side, we can see the United States being extremely desperate uh, uh, and uh, it being in a position that silly cannot be explained rationally. Uh, and we can see that Israel is brought... Uh, uh, as an excuse for the United States uh, to to respond uh, to a much bigger uh, crisis, which is the, the 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 global South crisis for the United States, they want to retain control of this particular region. They can see the breaks after the announcements of the plus eleven uh, that the breaks has already make their move on the uh, uh, the geopolitical chessboards with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, with Iran uh, controlling, you know, larger uh, a large portion of the uh, fossil fuel uh, resources of the world, plus uh, the Russians moving uh, quite aggressively in the Arctic, making it also very, uh, very difficult for the United States to uh, to do nothing. And I think that's the response uh, from the United States is what's allowing basically Israel uh, to conduct this uh, uh, these massacres and these genocides that, that we all can witness on on our on, on social media on television it, it's everywhere you can't miss it but uh, I think what's really important here to address is really the, the root cause of what we are seeing and uh, and how understanding this could help us perhaps and the diplomats and the geopoliticians and the economists to 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 come up with a solution that is rational what I call today, what we are seeing is the war of the corridors. This is the war of the corridors because uh, the global South has already put itself in place. They already put their foot down. They've clearly expressed, you know, exactly what is their strategy. One being to control the global resources, at least the global South uh, fossil fuel resources, and moving towards basically the de-dollarization process. So these are extremely powerful moves. And the response from the United States is a response with uh, what we saw during the G20 in September, early part of September, when the G20 came together, what came out of the G20, there's only one thing you need to remember, is IMEC, the uh, Indian Middle East Corridor, or the Indian Middle East European Corridor. And that is the response to the BRICS. And part of these corridors involve countries like Saudi Arabia, like the United Arab Emirates. So if you're wondering why these countries have not absolutely done anything Apart from blabbering about, you know, uh, you know, asking for peace and asking for aids and all that, but there's no concrete move from these countries because they are waiting basically their positions and their positions with the BRICS, but also their positions with IMEC, which will go through the UAE, through the uh, the Saudi Arabia, through Jordan, and of course Israel and uh, the rest of Europe. So these are now two corridors that are going to be the fighting against each other for dominancy. And it has to go, and, and when you look at that, you understand exactly what is going on, why people are basically quiet, uh, why people are just pretending that they really care when they literally clearly don't care. This is just a, uh, another problem that they would like to, to get off the table, if you will, but they need to address it because what the Hamas has done. And I think uh, the reason uh, that why the Hamas has done what it did is simply because there is a, 
Global South discussions about, you know, how things are shaping up in the region. And Palestine was not involved in that discussions. Everything was going on behind their back. And I felt that they realized that they needed to do something in order to draw that attention and force the Arab world all the way up to Turkey to make a move, to make a move and let the world see who is truly with Palestine. So that's really, uh, for me, the, the core essence of what we are seeing at the moment. We know that uh, Bibi Netanyahu spent some time uh, after uh, after the, the G20 with uh, uh, the White House, with Joe Biden. Uh, there has a lot of discussions about uh, uh, the uh, uh, economic development of Israel. Of course, the West Bank issues with the destabilizations and the fragmentation of the West Bank, which is a major problem because the Hamas is not in the West Bank. So it looks back for the United States. But uh, all that is... Uh, it's 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 kind of a role play if you read, from the United States. The United States is happy to look the other way as long as it doesn't damage too much their their image around the world. But unfortunately, it's definitely uh, kind of a um, it's it's getting back at them. You know, it's it's really literally blowing back at them, and uh, the world is reacting. And we're seeing the the pressures mounting uh, in the Western world, in the United States, in Europe where people are saying, okay, you've addressed the Israeli, the 7th of October, there are a lot of office uh, uh, animalities about what we've been told, a lot of things that we are seeing there that just doesn't fit the bill, uh, and we need to get some more transparency. We need inspectors to come. We don't need CNN journalists. What we need is United Nations inspectors to actually validate what the Israelis are saying to the world, and on the other side, we need a ceasefire. So, yes, there's a lot of things on the table that need to be addressed, Patrick. And that's the key, isn't it, Freddie? What you just brought up there, a very important point in all of this, is that uh, a ceasefire is necessary to stop the bloodshed and to aid, but it must be concomitant. It must be concomitant with aid, unrestricted aid being allowed into the same levels that were coming into the Gaza Strip prior to October 7th. That also includes not just aid, relief workers, medical workers, uh, the power, the water needs to be switched on, the siege needs to end, the the, the communications need to be re, uh, re, uh, reinstated as well for the cell networks, etc., and so forth. So that needs to happen. The UN investigators need to come in as well to survey what has happened there, and uh, human rights organizations need to be there. The International Criminal Court needs to be there. Basically, in any normal sort of country, in any normal situation, that needs to be opened up to these parties to come in, including mainstream media. And even CNN, Freddie, is not going to be able to avoid all the witness testimonies of the horrors that everyone has witnessed there. So no amount of propagandizing from the mainstream media will be able to hold back the tsunami of the truth in Gaza right now. So I would say bring them all in. But that's not happening. And this is this is the problem with the current uh, agreement, Freddie, you've probably seen this uh, tentative agreement. I don't even know if it's going to happen, but it seemed like they just said it just to just to sort of calm things down or get get the sort of dogs off them. Uh, the Israelis have said, yeah, five day truce and, you know, we'll have a pause. We're open to it, whatever. Is it really going to happen? I don't know. I don't think so. Will Israel abide by it? Who knows? They'll blame Hamas, I'm sure, if they manage to sort of 
give it the kibosh after 24 hours, but it hasn't happened yet. So, but those things need to happen, Freddie, all together, don't they? Because it's not it's not enough just to say a ceasefire and allow Israel to rearm. Go ahead. Yeah, it's 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 not enough, and uh, I think it is really hard to to trust what Israelis is saying. You know, I think they you just have to to really look at at the facts, what is verifiable. And what you can say, okay, this is solid information. And then from that, I can actually start to to analyze exactly what's going on without Israel being involved. Because what they're saying is irrelevant. Uh, it's been lies, pretty much, you know, 90% of it. All the rest is just, you know, a kind of a PR uh, stunt. But uh, the, the, the lies are, are there. Uh, I think they've been debunked, most of them. Well, we saw the last one with the Al-Shifa hospital, when we can see them firing at the, uh, at the doctors through the windows. We can see that they are literally basically in the courtyard there. Uh, they've not been able to prove any uh, uh, any uh, in any way possible that there is actually a basement that is the headquarters for the Hamas there because simply it, it is not. Uh, this is not what it is, and I think we, sh- we shouldn't pay any any attention to what Israel is saying at this stage. What's important is to really the the major two elephant in the room. One being the reason why we're here to die, and this is uh, really what I, I really want is people to start to to put the pressure on the ICC as far as an accountability because. We have, uh, as I say, so many journalists that are, that are, that are being killed uh, in Gaza. You have so many UN employees, over 100 employees that has been killed during the, this conflict. How this is acceptable from the ICC, how the ICC has not even already kind of made a very, very strong statement about, you know, issuing a, 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 not more than a warning to Netanyahu and his military cabinet. You know, this is absolutely unacceptable. And as I said, the, the posture of the ICC is basically the reason of this elephant in the room, because they've allowed Israel to, uh, you know, to to continue this policy of annexations. And we can clearly see that the West Bank is being uh, splitted uh, as we speak, you know, so that it's an ongoing, basically, ethnic cleansing that has been taking a lot of time. And what we are looking at this moment in time, it is the final solution. There is no doubt about it. And that final solution is Gaza. It is to rid uh, Gaza from uh, uh, from the Palestinian uh, populations, to move them further south to the point that they cannot feed themselves. There is no more water. There is no enough space. There is no enough square meters per person to live there, to survive there. Uh, and it's going to be forced upon the, the international community to start to take uh, uh, Gazan as refugee in their countries. That's really the ideal scenario for for Israel, which we know they they you know they're bragging about. So, what what are the, the solution now? Well, Israel doesn't care. They reopened two days or yesterday the Tamar platform, you know, with Chevron because they need oil, obviously. And uh, they cannot continue with this platform being closed. So they feel very comfortable that the the Gaza and the north part of Gaza is under their control. Uh, meanwhile, um, getting a lot of information from uh, from inside uh, Palestine that uh, Israel is not doing great on 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 the ground. They have not done it as probably as well as they they thought they w- they would do. And they're extremely cautious because. The level of casualty is is pretty high, whether it's on on people, on Israeli people, uh, soldiers being killed, but also on on equipment, materials, and vehicles. So uh, Israel is, is not having a good time at this moment in time. But they're trying to play that this is a, you know, this is all part of the plan. But I don't think the plan is going well. 
And I think more the clock is ticking, more we're going towards, you know, another week of massacre. And it's only a matter of time that something big is going to happen because the United States cannot keep this music going on for a very long time. No, they can't. And neither can the international community. The pressure's building. I mean, the numbers we saw on the streets this weekend in London rival the pre-Iraq war, anti-war protests. Those legendary protests in London, Freddie, uh, in London 2003. These numbers are literally rivaling that over the issue of Palestine. It's I, I could never have seen it. Uh, you know, I could not predict this. Yet here we are. This is where the world is right now. And it's only going to build. This is the thing. It's it's not going to get less. It's just going to increase. So we'll see what happens this weekend. I'm here with Freddie Ponton, independent journalist and researcher based in Europe. He's going to continue on with this conversation with us on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen. You're listening to TNT, today's news talk. Stay there. We'll be right back. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Who says legislation isn't a contact sport? We nearly came to blows today in the United States Senate as Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma squared off against Sean Butterbean O'Brien, the general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. O'Brien had been very critical of Mullen on X, tweeting, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. Just a clown and a fraud, always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy. Mark Wayne Mullen read that tweet and said, here is a place, now is a time you want to go? And Butterbean said, let's go. Cooler heads like Bernie Sanders intervened. They weren't going to come to blows anyway. This wasn't quite the caning of abolitionist Republican Senator Charles Sumner by pro-slavery Democrat Senator Preston Brooks of South Carolina in 1856, but it was good to see a Republican show a little spine, show a little enthusiasm for his position. Now, if we can only get Mark Wayne as focused on election integrity efforts and on budgetary issues as he is on posts on X. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Prescription drug pricing points to corporate mountain. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Today, no. there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. We must protect our right to know, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Before it's too late, understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're still now number one of this live broadcast. We're covering international news in a way that no one else does. And we're proud that we have a great team uh, here at the Patrick Henningsen Show to pull this together, our research assistants, plus great journalists and independent researchers like Freddie Ponton, who's on the line right now. And Freddie, uh, on, it's interesting on the gas uh, subject, the gas fields, uh, Marine One and two off the coast of Gaza. Um, I had an interesting conversation uh, with an expert in this field, and, and we we're trying to basically ascertain what the actual value was um, in terms of like take home profit, if you will, um, over what period of time uh, based on the reserves there. And he said, actually, you know, by the time you extract and then, you know, investment, payoffs and all the rest of it he said for 
uh, if if the PA had control over it or Israel from that field, just that field, um, for, it would be probably somewhere in the region take home of uh, $750 million a year, uh, believe it or not. So after all of the sort of costs and expenses. So from that point of view, it, it, it makes sense for the PA to have their own source of energy. But for Israel, it's not so much a significant sum. So if that's the case, Freddie, obviously there's economies of scale. Israel is is extracting gas from a, a, a long sort of strip of the Leviathan gas fields right up to the Lebanese border. Maybe with economies of scale, they'd be able to leverage that better. However, Freddie, doesn't it seem more likely that Israel is just keen to keep this out of the hands of the Palestinians more than anything to deprive them of any potential income or claim to the shoreline, et cetera, uh, under the guise of security and other things. But uh, what are your kind of thoughts on the, the strategy behind here? Because it doesn't seem like it's nothing on par with, you know, some of the other big gas fields like the Pars gas field, but it's still obviously significant regionally for those countries in the immediate vicinity. Any thoughts on on this this conversation? Well, yeah, I think it's the, the signals are a little bit confusing coming from Israel. Of course, you know, Israel being an occupying force, there's a, a paranoia that has been developing uh, over the years. It's not new. So, of course, any any kind of stream of revenues that will come into the hand of the PA, the Fatah, and now the Hamas would be a problem and be seen as a problem from an Israeli point of view. So uh, to come to the point that so recently, I think it was in July uh, 2023, so a few months ago, when uh, Bibi Netanyahu eventually started to green light uh, the idea of the uh, venture between uh, Egypt and uh, the PA uh, to, to get their hand finally on their gas so that the Palestinian can uh, achieve uh, energy uh, independence. Uh, and uh, to bring some kind of, uh, you know, e economic relief, because when you have electricity or abundance of electricity, of course, there's repercussion into the business and uh, the possibilities are, are tremendous. So I think what's very confusing is there's no way to understand why BB will have green-lighted this venture, uh, uh, knowing that the Hamas wanted, a, obviously, a piece of that cake because Hamas is in charge of the Gaza Strip, and the PA has no real authorities in uh, in the Gaza Strip. So since the the the, the Gaza Marine Project, you know, this uh, major gas field, which was discovered by BP, uh, B, sorry, British Gas in 1999, 2000, uh, this is something that would have been under the control of uh, uh, of Hamas. And that the problem is that we don't understand how BP would have green lighted this project with a PA and Egypt without the Hamas being on board. So the Hamas kind of uh, was definitely on board, but it couldn't be shown to the world that the Hamas was getting a slice of the cake. That's my. That's the only uh, explanation that, that I could bring to that, unless Hamas was cut off the deal, and uh, that would have kept this inner war between Hamas and, and the PA, but that doesn't make any sense at this stage. So what I'm saying here is, is very important because the gas field itself is uh, it's, it's an important. I mean, you got the uh, British petroleum that that has gone into the the right to explore and exploit the the, the Gaza field 
And we can see that Egypt uh, is definitely keen on, on going ahead with this plan as well. So everybody wants a piece of that cake. Uh, I'm not sure how many people are actually ready to pay for it. And, uh, and that's really the, the, the questions is that today, when we see the north part of Gaza being removed, literally of its citizens, uh, we must think that there's something more than just the gas. And uh, the answer to that is simply can only be one. In, and it's called the, the Ben-Gurion Canal. Uh, and we, we know from various uh, documents and discussions that have been taking place that uh, this is a, a subject of discussion that has been reinvigorated between the United States and Israel, Patrick. Yeah, the Ben-Gurion Canal, obviously that's the, the, the long-term big play uh, to transform trade and turn in, uh, Israel into a financial and uh, trade and energy hub uh, in the Middle East. So that's definitely the big play on the long-term scale. Um, getting there, however, uh, can be very tricky. <laughs> They're going to need uh, compliance or total submission from Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and so forth, not to mention, you can imagine the different attacks that might occur uh, if Israel is to undertake this sort of ambitious uh, reorientation of everything really coming through what used to be the Suez Canal. So that will be interesting. And, you know, Chevron's a big player here, uh, and they, they've managed to get Israel in a position where they almost control uh, a good percentage of natural gas that goes into Egypt, which Egypt relies on to meet its baseload power requirements, uh, its energy needs on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's resumed. So Israel's still supplying gas to Egypt. That's a that's a huge sword that Israel can hold over Egypt as well. They do have the power to basically shut down that gas supply. But ultimately, the operator is Chevron. That's an American company. As far, as far as I know. So it's, it is interesting, the dynamics there. You're right, Freddie, at the end of the day, in terms of sovereignty and who can do what to whom, energy plays a big part of this. And if you have anybody that's self-sufficient in there, in the region, like for instance, a fledgling Palestinian state doesn't rely on anybody for its energy, um, that certainly is a threat, as you said correctly, Freddie, uh, to uh, Israel's sort of dominance of everything in its orbit. So that's something that uh, we're trying to keep a close eye on, see what's developing there. You know, I, I what I found, Freddie, as I remember when I was in Lebanon uh, in, you know, 2008, 10, 11, 12, 13, that sort of time. Um, I remember mm. reading about the uh, offshore gas fields and Lebanese have been arguing with the Israelis over the maritime border since before that, still can't come to a conclusion. Hence, nobody wants to invest in it. And also, you've got the billionaire class arguing over who's going to control it as well. So this is also a big problem. There is everyone's fighting over the uh, fighting over the spoils of this, you know, newfound treasure trove, if you will, under the seabed, which is another problem. And so, what happens is these things end up getting mired in all sorts of complications over a long period of time just because of how many different actors there are and also just the instability the geopolitics of the region keeps it from happening so that's one thing i have observed uh in, in over the years so but uh, i wanted just to get your opinion on something else which a lot of people are starting to realize the pennies dropping freddie as they say in the english the old English adage, when the penny drops, and the penny's dropping on the kind of soft power 
idea that um, Israel has always been able to say that they're a victim nation. Those defending it, like the U.S., like Britain, like France too, uh, like Germany, have been able to say, well, they, 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 the people suffered the Holocaust in the Second World War, and therefore, you know, we need to basically give them some extra slack. They need security. The Arabs want to, you know, push them into the sea and all these other sort of well-worn tropes by now. But now I think you're starting to see a lot of people pushing back on that. They're not accepting this uh, idea that because of the Holocaust, automatically we should give deference to Israel's interests and desires and point of view, quite frankly. So what you're having mm -hmm. now is people are saying, when when Israelis, I see this in debates now, Freddie, and quite shocking, because I have never saw this before on such a level as now. You might have noticed this as well, but when, when they uh, someone defending Israel brings up the holocaust immediately the other side hits back and says well you know what about the gaza genocide which you guys are, you know which means you guys are no better than uh the germans so i mean like that's becoming mm -hmm. like mainstream conversation now so imagine freddie is there do you see a point in history where that's going to die down or is this going to be the new discourse going forward and what does that mean for for israel and their sort of you know political story if you will go ahead well, it's a narrative that has been destroyed and that is being destroyed, you know, progressively. But it's, it's as you said, it's, it's reached a, a point that now people do it in, in the open, uh, which is uh, obviously something new, you know, where people in the open on, on national televisions, in, in, you know, major interviews, people are saying, uh, and many Jewish people are saying as well, we don't want Israel to weaponize the Holocaust to create another Holocaust. You see, so it creates a problem within the community first. Before even reaching the uh, the global community, it creates a huge divisions amongst the Jewish community themselves. Okay, so what you're going to find is this far right, you know, uh, pro uh, revisionist uh, Zionist, which really doesn't don't really care about anybody else but themselves and about the fact that this is they are the chosen people, although. They, they claim to be a democracy, you know, it's very hard to believe you're a democracy if you're chosen and, and the others are not, you know. Mm, uh, so that, that's a problem, right? That is a, already a big problem as far as, you know, telling you a democracy and they're not known to know to really love people of color as well. You know, I think we have enough evidence of many Ethiopians and many other people coming to Israel and uh, uh, being uh, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, on the back foot very quickly, uh, not understanding why they were not welcome. Well, you're not welcome because you're not white, you know, uh, and that's a reality. Unfortunately, I don't like to say that because uh, uh, it's uh, it's a bit fiery, but that's the reality. And I've observed it for years and many years. And there is a problem even in between Ashkenazi and Sephardi. These are not the same level of, 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 of Jewish people. They work together when it benefits the group. But there are huge differences. And uh, many consider the Sephardi as a second class Jew, if you will. Mm. Uh, they're not considered as the Ashkenazi. So these are not the same people. They don't come from the same background. The Ashkenazi are not Semite. You know, so again, a, a lot of things just don't make sense at all in everything that Israel is claiming. And I think the, the Jewish people that are reasonable, that are conservative, that are pretty much looking at it, I say, look, I'm proud of who I am, the, the, the heritage. We, we have a history. That's the Holocaust. You know, don't spit on it. Respect it. But don't weaponize it, and I think mm -hmm. that's really absolutely fair. You know, yes. I think we 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 all uh, agree with that, and we all understand that the Western world has a, a 
almost almost feel like th- there is a debt that needs to be paid to the Jewish people for what happened uh, during the Second World War. And we understand that, but that must not be weaponized. There should not be a weight in the balance that allows you to take profit or benefit from it. There should be something that is historically recognized, something that you know people can say, okay, this happened, these people have suffered, how can we make it better to them? And how could we make sure this does not happen again? But if the Holocaust must not happen again, so Gaza. That's my point. Yeah, and that's fair. We, yeah, and 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 that for that, in order to make sure this never happen, okay, we need to hold uh, the Israeli uh, responsible. Hamas has a responsibility, and I'm quite pretty sure that they will be happy to face justice because when you do what they did on the seventh of October, that's mean they're committed to something that is is a war crime, and they knew it before going there, but they were prepared to pay the consequences for that. Now. Is Israel prepared to pay the consequences to what they're doing? Because killing, you know, more than six, seven thousand child babies and killing, you know, so many civilians that have absolutely nothing to do with that, and in creating a huge propaganda campaign to cover this war crime and genocide, they need to be brought in front of the justice. And we need to hold the ICC accountable this time so that the Holocaust and and, and Gaza being respected as war crime and crime against humanity and genocide. Because What's happening in Gaza is a genocide. There's no other way you can call it that. It ticks all the boxes. I've looked at all the international law. I look at all the charters, UN charters. You look at every document that covered basically even that covers the the law of engagements. You know, uh, in in war, none of what is Israel is doing is legal. So there need to be a tribunal, a military tribunal, at the end of this conflict, bringing. To the, to the forefront, those that have been involved in war crime, period, whether it's Hamas, whether it's it's uh, it's Israel, it has to be done because otherwise, how can we have a Holocaust that has been eventually coming to the Nuremberg trial and we have nothing for Gaza and, and life goes back like nothing happened? This cannot happen and this must not be allowed to happen. ICC need to be absolutely under pressure at all time to make sure this happened and that the Palestinians get justice for what has been doing done to them at this moment in time. I, I just think we've got two minutes, uh, just a minute left, Freddie. I mean, this is a really important point that you're getting to here. And uh, I'll, I will just say before we finish, you know, South Africa had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. While that's necessary, even in this situation, it must happen to go forward. But what's been done uh, by the Israelis to the native Palestinian population even goes beyond truth and reconciliation. There needs to be a Nuremberg trial, actually, yeah. for this. Yeah. I mean, so we're, we're, we're not being hyperbolic. I think you're not either. You're, you've looked at this, Freddie, in detail. You looked at what's available in legally, internationally, in a historical context, which you've been tweeting about as well. Excellent threads at Freddie Ponton's ex-Twitter account. But uh, that needs to happen, a- along with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That also needs to happen um, as well to go forward. Otherwise, Freddie, I see nothing but warfare uh, going forward. And, you know, that, that, who knows where that's going to end up in terms of a third world war. Freddie Ponton, we really appreciate you and welcome back uh, to the program. Uh, you're sorely missed by our listeners, but thank you for your contribution on TNT this week. You bet. 
There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Freddie Ponton. Follow him on social media to stay up to date with what's really happening. Look, we got this second hour still coming. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is TNT. Today's news talk will be back in a moment. <laughs> 